the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. So happy to be back for this one. So, Lindsay, I feel bad. I know you're a little <laughs> bit under the weather. You might notice um, I, this is not the first podcast uh, that we've recorded where I've sounded super stuffed up. Yeah. I was emotionally ready to do this. So, you know, why why hold back? You want to talk about some Uncle Buck? We're, we're doing it yeah. now. We can't always be emotionally or physically ready to do things. So it's like you got to take one or the other. If you can get both in there, it's great. But... Most yeah. of the time, I feel like we're we're both physically and emotionally ready to record. Yeah, always. You know? I mean, right now I'm laying on a on a sick bed and I'm just yeah. like covered in like Lysol wipes o- and open sores. Open. <laughs> I'm just like it's not yeah. covered right yeah. now. I just like um. uh, ungauzed your arms so your skin could breathe <laughs> for a little bit. I'm basically the baby in a razor head minute. right now. I thought, I thought, wait a minute, I thought we were done with our. Halloween season episode. <laughs> oh man! So, starting it off. Yeah, coming yeah. coming out with this awesome comedy. Starting the cold weather season with a <laughs> with a sick sickness. That's it's appropriate. Yeah. It's appropriate. But hopefully, we'll keep it light. We are talking about John Hughes's uh, beloved Uncle Buck, starring none other than uh, Canadian sensation John Candy. Oh, John Candy! Rest in peace to both of these. John Candy Gentlemen. and John Hughes. Such a, I, we'll, we'll go further into this, but yeah, in case you didn't know, John Candy and John Hughes have, have both passed away, you know, quite quite some time ago. Yeah, quite some time ago. And I got to say, while we were researching this, the most, I think uh, I've gotten a little kind of like sad and, and misty eyed yeah. while reading actors that have worked with them yeah. and directors like kind of remembering uh, their spirit. And it's been a, a bittersweet uh, research for for this movie. It's not completely uncommon, but for two guys that work together multiple times to be so loved by so many people and just seem like really good humans, um, yeah, such a tragedy that they both passed. But they've they have both left behind yeah. great great body of work. So um, um that's going to be one of the topics we're going to get into yeah, for and, sure. And this is uh the second time so like last season we did John Hughes's Weird Science mm-hmm. and you know we're trying not to keep revisiting you know we revisited Tim Burton. So this is the second time we're revisiting a director, but Uncle Buck is one that we've had on the back burner for a long time. It's it's one that I absolutely truly love. It's it's one of my favorite comedies and it's always a movie that I, I think I watch this like twice a year maybe. Yeah. And I always walk away feeling a little bit better about life after I've watched it. I think that's a common thing about John Hughes movies is often you do walk away from them feeling that way. And I'll, I'll say it. I think this is John Candy's best movie. I, I think that his best performance is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, but I think this is my, at least personally to me, my favorite John Candy movie and I think his best movie. Man, I don't know why I didn't think about this beforehand, but I mean, yeah, I would match you 
on those two. But I love him in Stripes. I, I'm, but I'm also a sucker for that movie in general. But yeah, and I guess like more and so I it's a supporting I, this character. Is, like this is being his movie. Like yeah. he's like the top right. build yes, actor. Yes, yes, yes. You're right. Um, so Uncle Buck, a lot of things, uh, you know, other than us just kind of gabbing about how much we love it, which we'll try <laughs> not to do. Um, we'll try to make this more about uh, giving you some information, and we'll talk a little bit about John Hughes. When we did our John Hughes movie last season. Uh, we were pretty heavy on the on the Hughes talk, so I think this is going to be more heavy on John Candy talk. So we'll give you a little rundown on John Candy's career. If you're not familiar, if you are familiar, hopefully mm-hmm. there'll be a couple nuggets in there that that you didn't know. And uh, but we will t- discuss a little bit the working relationship between John Hughes and John Candy because uh, John Candy has appeared in four movies that have been. Uh, associated with John Hughes, either as a writer, producer, director. This is a somewhat of a straightforward comedy in a lot of ways, but there is a lot of depth to this movie. And so we'll kind of talk about how this movie is a little bit different. Um, it is very heartfelt. There is some drama and uh, talk a little bit about the perception of the movie, because when it did come out, it was kind of bashed critically by quite a few people. And I don't think, I think that the, character of buck has really like grown on people i mean i feel like now he is viewed upon as like a beloved character movie character and this is kind of viewed upon as like a more of a beloved movie than it was when it originally came out i look forward to talking about that one because i um i know what you're referencing and yeah the the character of buck and i think a lot of the character dynamics in this movie are necessary in order uh for the progression of the story to to grow into what it does and and to end on the hopeful note that it does. Yeah. I think it's all very intentional and yeah, I look forward to that discussion. And, and we'll talk a little bit about why individually personally we think this movie is funny yeah. and then a little bit about, you know, we'll talk about Candy's career but a little bit about Candy in this movie and like what he brings to it and his sensibilities because mm-hmm. there was a lot of people who were considered for the role sure. of Uncle Buck and I think it would have been a really far stretch for like any of these other people to yeah. pull we'll get off into this character. It. We'll get into all that. We'll get into all that in our discussions. Um, we've got our picks of the week. What's yours this time? Mine is, <laughs> I went for, uh, I was going to go for a Hughes movie and then I yeah. just, I don't know, I was delib- deliberating way too much on this. I watched like a handful of movies that I inevitably did not end up picking mm-hmm. and I ended up going with... Uh, uh, connected via Uncle Buck with uh, Gabby Hoffman in Now and Then, oh, 1995's uh, coming-of-age movie Now and Then. Ugh, such a good one. So heartwarming. And I hadn't seen it since it came out, so it was it was a fun, it was a good, fun revisit. Yeah. And it's on Netflix right now, too. That's right, it is. Ugh, that one. It had been a while since I'd seen that. I was really happy to watch that one again. Yeah. Um, and what was your pick of the week? I went with... Uh, connected via John Candy um, with a, a favorite of mine from 89, 89. Um, who's Harry Crumb? Oh, wow. Okay. That's not the one I thought you were going with. I thought, no? you, were gonna, I thought you were going to do only the lonely. Oh. That's actually what I even wrote on our, on our bo- board there. Man, did I, I think I did say that originally and, um, and then I was going to do it. Yeah. And then you were going to do it. And then I've, I mean, honestly, I was watching that one and um, felt like it hit a little too close to home. And I was like, only the lonely. Yeah. Oh, okay. And I just was like, I'm going to shy yeah. away from that mm-hmm. one. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with uh, who's Harry Crumb. All right, well, that's a fun one. All right. Well, awesome. <laughs> so those are our picks of the week. 
mm-hmm. uh, as always, our Murray moment. But before we get into our first clip, and God, it's going to be hard picking a clip for Uncle Buck. This is one of the more quotable movies for me. But before we get into an awesome clip quote, <laughs> our clip quota. What? Clip quota. What? I mean, this entire podcast could just is, be clips from this. What is sitting on the this? table there? Looks like a dead bird. Um, it does. Those are those old, old bananas that uh, keep getting aged and aged, and then they end up in Miles' lunch. Oh, now lunch. I totally see it. Now that you actually, okay. Mm-hmm. And then by Funny. the time they're in Miles' lunch, they're like black. Ah, I've disgusting. never noticed that till just now that those are bananas. I've okay. just watched this a lot recently. Right. <laughs> well, I guess your attention to detail is oh, better than mine. Well, um, well now it just cut to the bananas, and it looked like there was like 15 in, on there. Oh, my the continuity. Continuity problems. See, Shoot. now you drew it to my attention. Now all I see is just a bunch of errors. What we're saying is look for the bananas okay. in the uh, opening they keep six shifting. minutes. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, what's Uncle Buck about? What's the story of Uncle Buck? When an unforeseen family emergency occurs, uh, the bachelor pad having noncommittal, slightly slovenly uncle is called in to watch after the family's angsty, rebellious teenager and her adorably sweet younger brother and sister and family dog. We go through, what, a week or two um, of Uncle Buck learning to be more of an adult while his teenage niece learns to let down her guard a little bit. As with many John Hughes movies, there is a lot of sweetness and humor mixed in with real-life hardships that all kind of come together and wrap up in a nice easily relatable package this is a pretty heartwarming movie gotta say yeah i agree yeah we'll go to a clip from uncle buck and we'll come back we'll get into our discussion can't wait to see what clip we do waiting for your sex shut up see ya see ya what'd you blow all that makeup for we're just going bowling I'm not going bowling. Come on, it's a great sport, and it's virtually impossible to get pregnant while doing it, if you catch my drift. You're disgusting. I'll die before I go anywhere with you. It's going to be fun. They have rent issues. And rent a foot disease. We've done the Battle of the Wills. The deck's stacked in my favor. You're just going to lose again. Try me. How'd you like to spend the next several nights wondering if your crazy, out-of-work bum uncle will shave your head while you sleep? See you in the car. So Uncle Buck, this is one of the few comedies, to me, laugh out loud funny. Uh, This is a fun movie to watch with people who love Uncle Buck because in the group setting, I think this movie plays even funnier. I also feel that this is one of the few comedies that's pretty clean you know it's like nestled in like this sweet endearing movie it's pg rated i think especially for the 80s was something that was really um different there were certainly a lot of 80s comedies that were kind of soft but generally they were r-rated or and they definitely weren't family friendly so i thought i think this is like that perfect mix of very funny really good script very good comedic timing and actors and then also something that you can sit down and kind of watch with just about anybody and there's not anything like overtly offensive about this. John Hughes really didn't ever escape that like there were plenty of cringeworthy moments in some of his other movies but this one I think yeah while it is family friendly you know it's not to say that there's not cussing in it that there's not adult subject matter. Um, I think that this is aside from planes trains and automobiles 
I, I feel like this is one of Hughes's most adult films and while at the same time being kid friendly and also just an all around enjoyable movie for uh, any age. Yeah. I, I love the, you know, we're, we live, we live in the Midwest. Yeah. A lot of times when a movie, you don't, you don't see it too often. Um, like a movie that I think sort of captures that like cold weather, fall season, uh, without being early a Christmas winter. Movie. Yeah. Without being a Christmas movie. Yeah. And I think this, and I, that's what I love about this movie. This could have, you could have easily thrown a Christmas tree in a backdrop and made this like holiday esque. And I love that that's not the case with this movie. I love that it's just a cold weather Midwestern yeah. film. And I think it really captures it. It pains me to know that this movie was going to be shot in St. Louis Oof. in our hometown. Yeah. And uh, in 1988, there was an unseasonably warm winter. And so they had to shoot it in Chicago, which is where most of Hughes's movies have taken place. And uh, God, how cool, it, been... how cool it would have been to have this like very like... <laughs> culturally significant and fun awesome movie to go down the history is a movie that was you know chicago's got a lot of awesome movies on yeah that 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 they can they they can put up there and say like oh this is awesome yeah but st louis is cursed we don't have too many it's cursed in that way we've got we've got the uh memorable scene vacation we've got escape from new york (laughs) But, yeah, we've got but escape from New of York. course, the coolest movie <laughs> that has ever been shot in St. Louis, it's supposed to be in another city and that's in the title. But like, <laughs> but like how cool it would have been for Uncle Buck to be shot in St. Louis. But, but you can think yeah. about that, that, that yeah. when you watch this the next time, know that the spirit of this yeah. was supposed to be in St. Yeah. Louis. Kind of getting into the, the humor of this movie. I simply think that J- John Candy has a particular comedic timing and style that I think works the best for this movie. And that's why I was saying, you know, I think this is his best role. Having sat down over the last, I guess like two weeks now Mm -hmm. and have watched about so many John Candy movies. Yeah. 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 So many, like uh, uh, almost eight eight to 10 John Candy movies (laughs) where he's like either the main star or like as early as armed and dangerous to my attempt about three nights ago to watch Wagons East, uh, John mm. Candy's. You didn't do 1941. I didn't do 1941, and it's his part's really small yeah, in that anyway. I tried to avoid anything that he was, you know, was only on screen for like. Sure. I did do career career opportunities, but since there was the Hughes connection, but I think early on for me, like the Candy movies, he had a played things more aggressively like mm-hmm. or at least that's where they were written of like this guy like summer rental mm-hmm. a guy who's kind of like an angry character you know and i think that the two films that i or really the three films that i gravitate the most toward with john candy are all hughes movies great outdoors planes trains in this movie uncle buck and he plays a gent- gentler character. Mm-hmm. Still funny, still has all the timings that he does really well, like his expressions and reacting to things, I think is great. And when he's listening to people, watching him react and like try to figure things out and like all his stuff with the kids in this, just his reactions alone crack me up because he's trying to understand them on their level, which I think is great and which I think is a smarter thing about this movie with the humor than... Uh, other Hughes movies and I think something that could be easily overlooked in Uncle Buck is that the way that the grown-ups in most Hughes movies have been clearly they've been like idiots 
that don't understand children. And that's they're, kind of they're how kind they're, of absentee. A little yeah. Bit. And, and that's kind of how the parents are played. Yeah. But John, but John Candy's character, Uncle Buck, like really listens to them. And even when he's getting a hard time from Tia in the beginning, he's sort of responding like, OK, what's he's trying to figure out, like what's exactly happening, but he's digesting it. And I think that the interplay between him and all the kids is some of my favorite stuff, which is essentially like almost the whole freaking movie. It, it really is. And I mean, when we go, we'll, we'll go further into to John Candy and why he's really good at that. But it, it is because he learned to be a master of improv. You know, a lot of these situations with the kids and like you said, it's basically the whole movie um, deal with kind of two particular themes. One that of family and family dynamics and maturing maturity in, in, in some fashion. And one thing that we mentioned in the beginning is how this movie got a little like ragged on a little bit for being aggressive or brash. And, you know, I, I see what's happening in that, but I think that in some ways you needed the conflict with Tia, who's the aggressive angsty teenager um, you know, hating Uncle Buck. You needed the mom hating Uncle Buck and and not wanting him to watch the kids, and and the boyfriend of Tia. You needed all of this like animosity coming towards him, in order for him to grow, and for I mean the movie to have a story too. But this idea of how he deals with it and how he matures and how the people that are coming at him how they adapt to that as well. And of course, the idea of family is, I mean, this is a family film. A lot of John Hughes films deal with family dynamics, whether it be, I think that this is actually one that is a little bit more like, okay, if we were to look at The Breakfast Club, we get a little bit of family dynamics in that movie and it's kind of all crappy. It's all really crappy. And this, right from the very beginning, you know, we get, we understand immediately that this family is kind of not unified that you know older teenager is controlling of the sweet little kids who seem to be like the best characters actually out of everyone and the parents are kind of not there and that they don't have a relationship so we set it up and then by the end after we've done all of this growth it's like a perfect john hughes is just was just a wonderful writer in that way yeah. of just like b building this story in an hour and a half and just wrapping it up in a beautiful bow <laughs> by the end and your heart feels like it could explode by the end of it. <laughs> and, and I and I will say there there is, I, I get, you know, some of the criticisms of this movie being a little mean-spirited. The one thing when I watch this movie every time that uh, always kind of throws me a little bit is how mean Tia's character is oh, and how yeah. rough she is pretty much through the whole movie. Yes. I mean, and, and they, but, but then she's reacting because she did get, she did get kind of crapped on. She did get taken away from her friends and she's that age where it would suck to like be taken out of, yeah. you know, you're old enough to like establish some more like firm relationships with friends and leaving somewhere at 15 and having to relocate to a new school. And essentially it feels like in the beginning, like, Uncle Buck's kind of like her punching bag. And totally. it is it is pretty rough, but I do feel that by the end of the movie, by her having her that rigid and that mean, uh, it does make her flip 
to yeah. to trusting John Candy's character and like understand where he's coming from by him not judging her so harshly at the end she feels all that guilt and that remorse for how she's treated him and how she's treated her family and I think that's why the end of the movie is so powerful where she hugs her mom I think that if she was like less mean and like they only did this quick little five minute thing because you almost kind of grow to like hate her character in yeah. the beginning it's it's pretty rough and I, and I and that's a bold move and I think that's a lot of the criticism this movie got early on was from you know the her character being that mean-spirited and you know but, but I but I think it pays off but I think it pays off it does it does and you know that that actress uh Jean Kelly who played Tia she at that time had I think I think she had gone through like four different high schools and had moved around a lot in her life. Yeah. So the idea of being, you know, taken out of your home environment and just kind of moved around and having that kind of like angst, like she was familiar with what that feeling was. And I think was super dialed in for, for this role. And maybe, you know, I don't I don't even want to say over the top for this role because like, it's valid. Yeah. It's, it's valid when you move, especially when you move in your high school years. Like my, my brother moved uh, when he was a junior. I think he was a junior in high school. And granted, he wasn't like angsty like this, but it certainly yeah. completely messed up his whole high school experience. Yeah. And it feel, and I feel like, again, like if it comes off realistic, it feels like that could be the case that, you know, yeah. you would have a reason to rebel, you know, yeah. not just it's better to have some sort of reason in a movie for a teenager to rebel than just being bored. Yeah. And I think like you were saying, it is necessary for her to be so mean towards Buck just as it is necessary for Buck to start off kind of, you know, immature and and childish in some ways. He's a big kid, but it's necessary in order to show his growth in the movie. It's it's like they both grow, but they both grow in different directions. And it's, um, yeah, it's just kind of beautiful how that happens. And kind of like leaning into like why this movie is so funny to to us in general, um, for me personally, I like that this movie is not straight up situational. I mean, certainly most of the humor comes from uh, the situations that he has to be in, like, you know, urinating in a little kid's bathroom where all the stalls are small or like (laughs) him, you know, the thing with his car, you know, they set up that his car like backfires and but they don't overuse these jokes. Number one, they don't overuse jokes too much. Like they'll come back once or twice to deal with his hat and no, to me, so that's like one level funny. Then second sure. level funny for me is uh, how John Candy has conversations with people, like the conversations that he has with Shanice, his girlfriend, the conversations that he has with the mom. Those to me are funny in a, in a whole nother level because, again, it's like the way John Candy like kind of reacts and like it tries to work his way out of situations or like trying to understand, like when he's talking to her about the, uh, you know, what's what, what's a dog? Well, how many, how many times, times does a dog like that eat, eat a day? You know, and just her response is like, how many times do you think he eats? Four or five. Four or five. And <laughs> I should you know, have told you that it's a, and, once uh, a day. Was he was he like was he like to drink water? Yeah, he he likes water. Okay, he's been leaving the toilet seats up. <laughs> Just that conversation alone <laughs> cracks me up every time. And I love his response because it does seem genuine and it seems innocent, but he's, it doesn't seem uh, overly 
kind of staged or like overly improv. And I know, I do know that John Candy is a great improver. And I know that from what I read, he improved quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but in earlier movies that I've seen of John Candy watching all these in the last two weeks, his early stuff like armed and dangerous, a lot of those scenes feel like they improv toward the end of a scene. It almost feels like someone threw in something because the other actor is not quite responding to something but because a lot of these are like phone call conversations they can they're able to cut it so that it's not like all in one shot so that it doesn't kind of take you out of the scene it's like they're able to like sort of like seamlessly time things in the editing and I think that's where a lot of this movie gets the a lot of really yeah the editing and a lot of to me like there's a lot of little quick phone call scenes in this movie and I, I think a lot of you get a lot of the information, a lot of the editing for those scenes. Uh, they that cracks me up. Yeah, and and that could be said too with with uh, even Shanice and Tia. Like there there are a few a few times where yeah. just like the the editing, um, whether it's not even with the phone, just like the way that um, and it, again John Hughes in in editing it happens in Ferris Bueller. It happens yeah. it happens in so many of his other movies that the comedy is uh, the comedy is there already in the scene yep. but the editing adds a whole yeah, other it. dynamic that it just makes it even funnier and i do and uh, the other thing too like the last sort of thing for me with this is it it doesn't rely heavily i think like john candy a lot of the movies he had did sort of relied heavily on physical humor and also like maybe I'm glad you, brought that you up. know yeah. maybe almost being like the sort of like overweight humor and this movie doesn't really go for that lowbrow sort of like oh he's overweight and he's gonna like fall into like you know smash a table or whatever which don't get me wrong that stuff can be funny in its own but this movie doesn't rely on that there's a tiny bit of physical humor that's in there and when it is there it works and then also to john candy also really hated that yeah he hated the any type of like fat joke any type it wasn't his jam but he did get talked into it and and to me i think uh, i adore john candy's laugh and his like sort of like laughing at situations in this him laughing cracks me up and he's got a few different laughs yeah and uh (laughs) and and i just love the way he you know the script to this in my in my mind is like one of the funniest john hughes scripts and just even his uh talking about when he's nervous, the way he talks to her when he's nervous and he's like over talking, he's just like, I don't know. I just been eating a lot of cheese. It's just, I, I, I can't get enough of this stuff. You know, is it, you think that's an allergy? He's like, I, I don't know. I just feel like a, like a mouse. I just can't stop eating cheese. And she's just, you know, her, her father's just had a heart attack. She's like, he's talking been about up. Cheese. It's like 3am and he's just like, sort of like, but, it, but I love that. It's like this nervousness. And yeah. to me, it's not that anxiety, awkward humor. It's just, it, it, it comes off more endearing. And that's what I love that, John Candy has that style where it's like, I think, you know, another uh, actor might have taken it into a more like how awkward, you know, like a Ricky Gervais type thing. And and he he refrains from all that. He keeps it genuine. It's very natural. It's natural. And to me, it just it cracks me up. I just I can't get enough of it. I, I and I think it, it it's because it feels it, it doesn't feel staged. It just feels like it's what's coming out of him. And it's when when a scene works with John yeah. Candy, he knows what's working and, and what's not. And, and to me, he takes these opportunities because those are all moments that that are required to move the plot along. Mm-hmm. You know, in a comedy, you, you, a lot of times comedies can be slowed down because you need all the setup. Like you have to have it for story. You have to have it for the plot. 
And what I love about this movie is like all those setups are funny. Like the, the, the setting up his relationship with the kids, the setting up him getting yeah. to their house, uh, yeah. going next door and like being really loud. And, and it's it just like they find, you know, John Hughes finds a way to set up the story, but at the same time giving us humor. The, yeah, exactly. The in-between scenes, even when we're not advancing the plot, the in-between scenes are still are still funny. Even a scene that does not matter, like the the neighbor, Lori Metcalf, you know, she comes over and is, you know, kind of half hitting on yeah. Uncle Buck. Or it's I love so, her in this so it's much. It's so awkward and makes me very uncomfortable. But yes, she's wonderful in it. But like the the dance scene that is not it's not really important to the plot other yeah. than his girlfriend walks in and assumes something's going on. But Uncle Buck like grabbing her by the head, like they're dancing yeah. and like the weird like close up shots that are just it's incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. But like what, what is this sturdy dancing? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> But it's just one of those things that, that that's what we're talking about. The the in between moments that aren't advancing the plot yeah. are still funny and are not taking you out of of the story and yeah. just making you kind of appreciate Buck even more. With the mean spirited or perceived mean spirited humor of this, there's so much that happens where Buck is defending people in the family, whether whether it's you know, the principal saying that Maisie is a daydreamer and, you know, a bad student and she's six years old and he gets super defensive of her and, uh, you know, verbally attacks the teacher or Bug, the crappy, you know, boyfriend of Tia. And he's repeatedly, those are some of my favorite scenes, even, even, it goes a little extreme with Bug. Yeah. But, um, but those scenes are all about, you know, him defending the family and that's all about his progression and growth as a person and realizing that, oh, this like having a family thing, I'm kind of uh kind of into this right. actually. So it's it's advancing the story while yes, throwing in these kind of softball um bits of humor that can be perceived as you know, kind of aggressive or mean-spirited, but it's it's not really mean-spirited because he's reacting to crappy things that are happening to the people that he loves. Yeah. So and that's why I don't know. I I don't I don't buy that mean-spirited thing. At yeah, all and and, and kind of what we're referencing here is like if you go back and it, it's hard to not go back and like read reviews of movies when they first came out when we're doing this mm -hmm. when we're set, you know researching these episodes. And a lot of reviews of this movie were really poor, uh, including Roger Ebert who generally has a soft spot, I think, for, for humor. And he gave this one and a half stars and other reviewers God, just felt that the movie, and yeah. Half. And I mean, you've seen some of the movies that the guy's given like three stars. To. Yeah. But a lot of reviews that we read, including his, were that the movie is like extremely mean spirited and it's, but, but that gets in the way of the humor. So it was, it was interesting reading, you know, how, how much this kind of got ripped on because I feel like this is now is always considered like a, a real charming, you know, standard for heartwarming comedy. I think but. that it's because it becomes about a yeah. defensive family type of story. Yeah. So let's go ahead and go to another clip. We come back, we'll talk a little bit about Candy's career as well as some of the other casts in the movie, and then we'll move on to our picks of the week. Sounds good. What are you doing here? We were just driving by, going out for some ice cream. Thought you might like to join us. I said I would be home at 10. It's not even nine. 
Who said anything about that? I just thought you'd like to join us for some ice cream. Maybe your bug here can join us. We can talk about burying the hatchet. You know what a hatchet is, don't you, bug? It's an axe. Sort of, yeah, yeah. I got one in the car if you'd like to see it. I'll pass. Fair enough. I like to carry it, you know. You never know when you're going to need it. Uh, you know, a situation may come up, say, uh, uh, for example, someone's been uh, drinking and about to drive a loved one home. Then I like to know I have it. Not to kill, <laughs> just to maim. Take a little off the shoulder, the elbow, shave a little meat off the old kneecap. Ooh. You got both kneecaps? <laughs> I like to keep mine razor sharp, too. Sharp enough you can shave with them. Why, I've been known to circumcise a gnat. <laughs> You're not a gnat, are you, Bug? Wait a minute. Bug? Gnat? Is there a little similarity there? Whoa, I think there is. <laughs> you understand what I'm talking about? I don't think you do. I'll be right back. <laughs> so John Candy passed away in 1994, but he had a fairly long and lively career starting in the late 70s like kind of early 70s early 70s okay Mm -hmm. do you want to bring us up to speed on yeah 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 he sort of like pre john candy john hughes he had always been interested in theater and um had done community theater um for a great portion of his early life and had a number of odd jobs and was you know, a salesman and uh, selling paper products here or, you know, just random jobs. Nothing really ever uh, settled. And one of the last jobs he got fired from, his boss said, I should have never hired an actor. And it was at that moment that John Candy was like, man, somebody actually thought of me as an actor. And he was like, okay, this is, I'm making this commitment and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to follow that dream and I'm going to take you know, paying acting jobs or that's really what I'm going to go for. And he did. And I, and I think it was, you know, at a time where, man, I don't know, I, I, I wish I would have been around to say if this is true or not, but it feels like there was so much more accessibility or, or things weren't as, it was all about who you knew and your friends and like that sort of thing and building a community. And once you get in, you know, a, um, community atmosphere of actors and you have a good core group, everybody starts to work with everybody. And so, you know, John Candy really did fall into that. Yes, he, he did have, um, he did a few years, actually he did two years of community college in journalism. I was really happy to find that out. That was pretty cute. Didn't know that. He's a big writer, wrote a number of scripts and then, um, kind of was doing commercial work, fell into, um, a just, a happy accident and I love when I hear that things happen just by chance he fell into this uh, uh, toothpaste commercial where they were specifically looking for like a, a like larger but like kind of boyish football player like sweet looking man and like that was John Candy and he fell into this role and then um, let's see that kind of led him we'll, we'll just we'll speed up a little bit he was still taking acting jobs and doing community theater and 
how he got involved with Second City was he kind of got tricked by Dan Aykroyd, which is really funny. Um, so you have all of these kind of Canadian comedians hanging out. And again, friends, you know, Dave Thomas, Eugene Levy, all of these guys ended up in, in Second City and Gilda Radner as well. And Dan Aykroyd tricked him into auditioning for Second City in Toronto. And when I say tricked him into it, um, I'm saying that John Candy kind of didn't have the... Um, he was funny enough to do it, and that's why Dan Aykroyd wanted him to do it, but he didn't have the, you know, confidence behind him. And so Dan Aykroyd, they were driving down to the audition, and what he did was he put them both in, and he didn't tell John Candy until they got there, and then he got there and was like, oh, crap, I'm all, I'm doing this right now. They both landed it, of course, and pretty quickly after that, um, Del Close, who was the director of Second City in Chicago, really took a liking to John Candy, and he got shipped down to Chicago, and I might talk about that a little bit later on in the podcast, um, but it was at Second City where he really grew as an actor and his improv skills and where he stayed for um, quite some time. And he was only in Chicago for about a year. He was shipped back up, up to Toronto. And it was right about that time where when Second City TV started, which was basically the um, Saturday night, like Canadian version of Saturday Night Live. And man, there's a whole, there's so many stories involved in all of this that I'm just like kind of speeding through it. But it would be at Second City TV is where John Candy really started to blow up. And then, you know, all these little tiny film roles start coming in and he, you know, he meets Spielberg and Spielberg gives him a tiny role in 1941, which was a total bomb. And it was really Stripes, the Ivan Reitman, Harold Ramis, Bill Murray film that made a audience on a larger scale outside of Canada take note of John Candy. And that from then on, um, I think we kind of know like where he went on from that. You know, we, we have Splash and uh, let's see. God, I can't even remember the order of everything. So Volunteers, another movie he did with Volunteers, Tom Hanks. Summer Rental. Summer Rental was like his first big. He did a Going yeah. Berserk, which was like one of his first starring roles. It was a Canadian production, but... Summer Rental, I think, was one of his first big yeah. movies. It was like 1985. He had like three or four movies come out. And um, Vacation was bef- like the same year as Going Berserk. Brewster's Millions, Summer Rental Volunteers. That's right. That was 85. Armed and Dangerous. And then Spaceballs, I think, is one of his bigger roles. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? Yeah. And and then, then that's when we moved to um, uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles and great outdoors and that sort of thing and, and advanced beyond that he's kind of always been around and i'm i mean i could go even further into this i don't know how how much further but i even grew up with the cartoon the that he did camp candy that was oh yeah yeah <laughs> do, do you remember that i, I do remember that i totally yeah. do um and that was kind of towards you know the end of his career before he passed out i think like maybe three years or so um it was before Cool Runnings, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure, but he had set up a production company because, you know, he was still doing movies, but he wanted to spend time with his family and um, had set up this production company to, you know, still keep making 
still keep making movies, but also get his kids involved or, you know, like in some way. And like maybe that's doing some voiceovers and even his daughter is an actress now, Jennifer Candy. And I also found out I didn't know that he partnered into um, uh, co-owning a football team and he had always wanted to be a football player you know from from when he was in high school but blew out his knee and that dream was kind of shot so co-owning a football team was a realization you know and a very very sweet realization for a man that was just so lovable anyway he that went on for just a couple years I want to say maybe like two years and this was in the early 90s early 90s like 91 to uh late 93 or early 94 and then it was his uh last film which was uh wagons east was during production of that was when he found out that one of the partners had sold the football team uh the argos and it just kind of crushed him he felt really betrayed by it and had had A few health problems. I think you were saying something to me earlier that he had talked to Catherine O'Hara, who was a good friend of his. Yeah, when he was getting ready to leave to shoot Wagons East, and they shot it in Mexico, I believe. Yeah, He was saying he was having a bad feeling about going down there. You know, maybe you can say that it was expected. I don't think you really can, though. I mean, he wasn't in the best of health, but, you know, his father died of heart problems. He died of a heart attack. Yeah, I think when he was like in his 30s. Yeah. So it's a super tragic end to his to his life, especially for, I mean, you know, whenever anyone dies, you always, I think, you know, think, think the best or think, you know, how could this happen to someone that's so wonderful? And I think we, you know, can always think that about someone. But, yeah. I, but in John Candy's case... Anyone that ever talked about him, he was just such a, just such a likable, good guy. And I read one story, which, um, which really warmed my heart. Cause I kind of got into a little bit of researching only the lonely a little bit. And, um, Maureen O'Hara, who played his mom in that movie, who's an old timey actress. And she was in Miracle on 34th street. Anyway, he loved her and John Candy grew up going to movies and, and had, you know, his, his father passed away and his mom, um, you know, she was a single mom and working and, you know, he, he went to the movies, went to the movies a lot as a kid and, and, and saw Maureen O'Hara's movies. And when they were doing only the lonely, he got the bigger trailer and she got a smaller trailer and he asked, you know, why is that? And they said, well, you know, you're the, you're the bigger star. And I mean, it just warms my heart that the man was like, no, that's not how it's going to be. And he switched, he asked her to switch trailers. And he was always the guy that I think he got ragged on a little bit for requesting a lot of things, whether it was water or snacks or, you know, all of these things for for his trailer to ha- to have around. But it wasn't for him. It was for people that he would have over. Yeah. And he was very into entertaining and entertaining. Making sure people had a good time. Yeah. It Get, all, very, very giving. Yeah. It just it seemed like he was a very, very generous person and always had the best interest of, of people at my, in his mind and really loved his family. And, um, man, just, uh, I, I really love researching him because, uh, I knew some of the stuff 
and yeah. there there's so much more there but the last movie that he was making was was wagons east and i know that both wagons east and canadian bacon were dedicated to his memory like because yeah. they were the last two released uh post yeah. post him passing away you know one thing that i realized before we before we cut out of this john candy talk is that you know i've watched hell of a ton of his movies in the last two weeks as of you justin and think what you will of some of them you know some are better than others i was charmed by some parts and delirious but i get why that movie doesn't work completely no matter how good or not good the movie was john candy's performance in it made the movie better and that i think is something that's super important to note yeah i, th- I think his i think his skill as an actor kind of was like leaps and bounds uh, you know beginning with his kind of like long career with John Hughes mm-hmm. and yeah the, definitely the his acting I think in Delirious and in Only the Lonely you know he he he, he was showing a side of himself that we saw a little bit in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles but saw like a full spectrum like in both of those films yeah I wanted to go back to Uncle Buck just very briefly and then we'll move on to our picks of the week but just uh the cast of Uncle Buck um everybody has like you know there's a few people like Laurie Metcalf that we said had tiny roles in it, but the kids in this movie I think are really great. Uh, we've got Gabby Hoffman and Macaulay Culkin, and they're probably what like six and eight in this movie. Such babies. Um, do I think just like a phenomenal job? And to me, the whole like precocious kid thing is always can kind of rub you the wrong way in movies. You're not a and fan of that. I'm not a fan of it. But I, I think in this, they're not really precocious. They're like kids, and they're just cute kids. And mm-hmm. I think that the they do a really – I love their expressions. The scene where uh, he embarrasses Tia, and he's saying – he uh, He's up in front of – yeah, he's out front. She's like, has anyone ever did anything? Has anyone ever, ever embarrassed you, you know, like this is bad? It's and like he's kind of – he's thinking about it, and it cuts to the kids in the back seat, like their reactions, and it cuts back to John Candy's like – no and then they start laughing and uh and then he's he she tia leaves and he asks uh do you think she hates me and gabby hoffman's like with a passion is it the hat yeah <laughs> and i just I, I love his i love his interactions with them and i think it's great because it it does feel like he's becoming more involved in their family and mm-hmm. and they really love him and i i i think that the relationship with the kids in this is like really great and I thought Gabby Hoffman and Macaulay Culkin did great jobs. And I can see why Macaulay Culkin went on to get home alone. And, you know, cause you can just see in this movie, he's got a look about him and then this yeah. intelligence about him. That's in, that just kind of like jumps off the screen. There's something about, I mean, yeah, he and Gabby Hoffman really stand out. And it, it's, it's funny to say, you know, as a, a child actor, that that doesn't always happen that you know you grow up and you still have a career when you're an adult but they completely stood out in this movie and it wasn't just they weren't just relying on the fact that they were cute kids they were actually like really cute and good actors i felt like there are quite a few moments where uncle buck has independent moments with either Macaulay Culkin or Gabby Hoffman and just their independent scenes together, the way that they play off of each other. It's so welcomed by the children, but you can tell John Candy's leading it. 
but it's just the way that they vibe off of each other. It's just really cool to watch. And they do, they do feel very like sibling like, and even the, the Gene Kelly who plays Tia, yeah. like her, her reactions with them, they do feel very like brother, sister, like it, sister, sister. It feels very like they, they get along as a family, but they have their differences. And this was Gene Kelly who plays Tia. I know you mm-hmm. brought her up a little bit in the first discussion, but this was her absolutely first uh, film role. This mm-hmm. was like her debut film role. She had done some theater, but um, auditioned for this and, mm-hmm. and nailed the part. And uh, I think she does like a really fine job. Is you know, like we said before, it's like she, she comes off very mean and 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 raw, but. For someone who this is their this being their very first movie, I mean, she plays a huge role in this. Yeah, uh, you know, kind of like almost like a central character in some ways out, outside of John Candy's character himself, and I think really does like an admirable job. And that is something that's kind of unexpected to have, you know, the other lead role be the teenager in this movie, and also thinking that the dynamic of having an older teen and two young siblings I don't think is ever really a dynamic that happens too often it's like usually like a Brady Bunch thing you know they're a few years apart in age yeah. um but it, it really does set that uh it, it sets a it sets a different dynamic between between Buck and Tia yeah and and finally I think um Amy Madigan is uh Shanice Kobolaski <laughs> of Kobolaski Tires who I believe she <laughs> she um came up with the name Shanice herself she did she brings sort of the sort of groundingness yeah. of Buck's character, and I think she's the really the reason why we get the good setup of Buck of like you know she wants to she she's like the voice of reason for Buck like she's we get the first sense of like this being like a serious movie where she's trying to convince him you know I want to have kids and I you know you know I want you to start working for the company that I have and you know it's a good career and you know he's wanting to kind of have more of like a free life of like drinking and going to the track, not doing like the sort of nine to five job. And I really think that she adds like this extra dimension to the movie that, that bases it more in reality. You get this sense that this is what she wants. Like, you know, you get this feeling of like, this is what she wants. She wants the dream. And at the end when she's like, aren't they cute? And she's talking to, to buck about it at the end of the movie it's like you get this sense of like he's seen more of a realistic view of the conversation that they had in the beginning of the movie and i think you kind of see it, it comes full circle like you see like a sort of character arc of, of buck because this total dichotomy of the, the the conversation about having kids and not having kids there is a, there is a scene that i've missed somehow in multiple viewings of this movie but when when shanice is staying at the house with with buck and the kids that he says something as he's running into a bedroom. We should have done this a long time ago. And she like playfully, you know, and laughingly like chases him in there and they shut the door. Like it's going to be this cute romantic moment and then like wait like three beats and then the kids run the in kids there. Like, ah! It's so cute. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah, it's that John Hughes like wrapping up with a nice little bow yeah. at the end. And we know that, you know, that Buck has grown up and you know it's kind of Shanice's dream and the kids are happy and everyone's gotten to be a better person because Uncle Buck's gotten to stay with them anyway um yeah this cast is is pretty wonderful mom and dad Elaine Bromka and uh, Garrett Brown aren't in it like that much 
um, of note, but um, I think they do do a great job of, uh, you know, not being like. I think I think the mom sets John Candy up for some yeah. great great bits in the beginning. Yeah, she does. Her uh, her phone calls with him when yeah. she with the it just makes me feel really secure that you're staying there like that. Yeah, it hurts. It very very much hurts. Um, but yeah, this um, the the cast is is very solid, and uh, we should give a quick shout out to. Um, uh, the boy who could fly, Jay Underwood, is bug. Yeah. Does a great job. I think he he plays a scumbag <laughs> really really well. Yes, he does. The legendary boy who could fly. You ever, you ever hear before. of a tune up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a nat, are you, bug? Wait, nat, bug? I don't know. <laughs> Did you know I'm an amateur dentist? <laughs> yeah, you know, bu- bug really gets what he deserves. He does, and I. You know, I, I think it is, if we're going to say the one time that this movie maybe crosses a line is probably the fact that, you know, when when Bug really hurts Tia and Buck decides to um, get a little revenge Basically and kidnap him and then kidnap him, duct tape his him. mouth and put him in the trunk then, of his and car then, and then physically <laughs> assault him with golf balls. Okay, it's like the one time yeah. the movie goes a little bit too far. It goes far, but I think it still makes for a pretty funny scene. And that's another reason that you can't really say that there's a lot of mean-spirited humor because when you have a scene like that, it is ridiculous. Yeah. It's not reality-based. Yeah, it would not happen. So it's it's meant for comedy. Yeah. Anyway, the cast in this is really solid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think, I think that, that there's a lot of great support in this. Well, let's uh, let's close it out there on Uncle Buck. We might come back for a final thought, but let's move on to our picks of the week. Neither of us went for the John Hughes route. I went for Now and Then, and then you went for uh, Who is Harry Crumb. Mm-hmm. What can you tell me about Who is Harry Crumb? Oh, you who lead- is Harry Crumb? You want me to lead this off. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. So no one judge me for liking a good bumbling detective movie and it's nearly impossible to not like the lovable john candy i mean i feel like if you 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 like him or you don't and if you don't like him why anyway with who's harry crumb you throw in my childhood crush shawnee smith who we talked about in the blob and well i'm already on board for this ridiculous comedy to come out of 1989 so this movie was directed by paul flaherty brother of joe flaherty from second city theater of course we talked about john candy working with second city joe flaherty was a very good friend of his um who's harry crumb is a light-hearted ridiculous comedy caper about a clumsy yet brilliant detective it's not a total masterpiece but it's made by folks who know comedy And if you're looking for physical comedy and John Candy in occasionally culturally offensive costuming, well, this is probably a movie you're going to like. The general plot is a daughter of a well-to-do family is kidnapped and held for ransom. Dad hires supposedly the best private detective ever, one who comes from a long family line of detectives. Enter John Candy as Harry Crumb, who is a great detective, but also a complete idiot at the same time. And in this reality, that's something that's possible. He gets some inside info and a sidekick in Shawnee Smith's character of Nikki, who plays the younger, overshadowed sister of the girl who's been kidnapped. 
Annie Potts plays the affair-having mom who's also plotting to kill her husband for his money. However, because of this whole kidnapping business, it's thrown a wrench into this murder scheme by diverting any money to potential kidnappers instead of into her greedy little hands. Harry suspects her as the kidnapper for the entire movie, (laughs) which is not correct. Therefore, adding to the comedy. Anyway, but the twist is the kidnapper is actually Harry Crumb's boss, played by Jeffrey Jones, who we probably all know as Ferris Bueller's principal, who's lusted after Annie Potts for years and figures with money he can get her to sway his way. This movie is wild and completely silly. John Candy never really liked humor at the expense of his bigger stature and often fell victim to it in some comedies he was in. I'd almost expect like that kind of humor in Who's Harry Crumb to happen, but surprisingly, it's mostly absent, save for like twice, which is impressive for a movie that has a ton of physical humor. But it's more about Harry looking like an idiot or getting himself into some awkwardly terrible situation that'll likely cause him some bodily harm. And if this movie were even close to reality, Harry probably would have been dead multiple times over. Though this is mostly a bumbling detective comedy, the scenes between Harry and Shawnee Smith's Nikki do offer up some heartwarming moments, and I think that this can kind of get lost in there. They're an adorable duo, and sometimes it looks like she's thoroughly entertained by his goofball charm, almost like they're caught in an out-of-character moment, and I'd imagine that Candy's improv ability served as a source of constant entertainment. As Nikki becomes interested in helping her find her sister, Harry provides an opportunity for Nikki to shine as his sidekick. She's been overlooked her entire life, lived in the shadow of her beautiful, now-kidnapped sister, but her eagerness to help solve this crime shows her dad that she's just as special as her firstborn. It's kind of like the minor heartwarming part of the story. And as for the rest of the cast, Annie Potts always rules from crimes of passion to ghostbusters to designing women. I never tire of seeing her sass and she heavily lays it on as this oversexed money-grubbing wife. And Jeffrey Jones's wily, spastic behavior is on point as ever as it was in the 80s. It's kind of what he was known for then. Maybe not so much now, but what he was known for in the 80s. And Barry Corbin, who I remember best from the show Northern Exposure, does the best that can be done with his one-dimensional, sad, clueless father of the kidnapped girl role. It's totally fine. It's not really about the supporting cast for the most part. This is very much a John Candy vehicle. Cameos by Jim Belushi, Joe Flaherty, and Wesley Mann cannot go without being mentioned. It should also be said that there are some culturally inappropriate and stereotypical disguises that Harry pops into for some undercover scenes. It's only about, I think it's only three, maybe four. These scenes are inappropriate, but I don't feel as if they're making fun of cultures. It's more about making fun of Harry and his clumsy investigative techniques, but As with any 80s movies, this potentially offensive disclaimer should be stated, and they are, you know, relying on stereotypes, and there are plenty of cringeworthy moments, especially when Harry is in disguise as a Middle Eastern man, but okay, you've been warned, but it's fine. There have been worse things in the 80s. All in all, I find Who's Harry Crumb continues to kind of crack me up, even after many times viewing it. And you do have to like John Candy and his humor to be into this movie. His facial expressions, awkwardness, 
uncomfortableness, uh, talking in circles, mucking up things constantly. You have to just give yourself over to absurd lunacy and abandon anything that makes sense. This is a silly comedy that's far from perfect, but still highly entertaining to me. kind of makes me like want to be a private investigator, but I know that that's not at all what being a private investigator would be like. You watched this recently, I think, didn't I think you? That's totally what it'd be like. <laughs> you think? A private investigator, yeah. God, it would be pretty cool climbing through some vents using walkie talkies and a costume. I would do that. Yeah, this is a movie <laughs> I watched um, when we were going through our candy movies. And this is uh, one of the few candy movies that I had never seen uh, where he was the main star. Yeah. And so I had like zero nostalgia or anything attached to it yeah and so just kind of like watching it blindly uh, <laughs> it was it was a different experience for me maybe i don't know like i uh i loved the first half of this movie the second half not so much but i do okay. the stuff with his, him and shawnee smith was so great mm-hmm. like their relationship I missed more of that. I didn't feel like it was a it was a complete uh, lock between like their their relationship and in the outrageous physical humor that was going on. But the uh, the movie did remind me a little bit of of the Ernest movies I love. Kind yeah. of like how the physical humor is like so over the top, where he's like hanging onto the fan and it's like spinning. <laughs> that 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 really cracked me up. And his bit in the beginning, where his like ties getting caught in that machine, is. Uh, that's the kind of humor that I think yeah. like uh, it's like some naked gun style. Yeah. Humor yeah. Too. And it's, it's the kind of humor that that John Candy, I don't normally see him do as much in the movie. And he did quite a, quite a bit of it in this movie. And, and some of it I found funnier than other moments, but, yeah. but overall it's, I thought it was like an enjoyable movie. You know, it's, it's very silly. Yeah. You, you it, is, it is extremely silly. And it was almost like they set it up for a sequel that I guess never, never really came uh, I yeah. don't know if they were, but I don't, I don't think the movie was a very big hit. But, I don't I don't think that yeah. it was, but I, I could see. I think at that point they were probably setting every movie up for a yeah, sequel. Yeah, yeah, and this came out the exact same year as Uncle Buck, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it did. Um, but I loved it. It's cute. Yeah, it's, if you're in for a wacky comedy, it's it's a good one. Yeah, something that's not a wacky comedy, um, is your pick of the week. Yeah, my pick of the week was Now and Then. Love this one. This is a coming-of-age movie. It takes place over one summer in 1970, and the that's where the majority of the movie uh, takes place. Now, the beginning and the end of the film are present-day 1995, and it's uh, four female friends that come together for a reunion. Uh, two of them have stayed in this small town in which they grew up, and the other two have gone on to you know become successful one is a writer played by Demi Moore the other is a a big Hollywood actress played by Melanie Griffith the two that stayed in the town were Rita Wilson uh, who's a homemaker and and is is currently pregnant with uh with a kid and uh, Rosie O'Donnell who has become uh, a doctor in the small in the small town that they live in in the beginning it kind of the beginning movie kind of feels like they're caricatures you know they're not really giving the adult versions of these characters much depth but I think for good reason because we're about to kind of see where they come from so there's you don't want to get rid of all that in the first opening of the of the movie so then we flash back to 1970 of how they all were became really really tight-knit group 
this portion of the the movie that takes place over the summer, I think, is really riveting. Um, you know, this movie got a lot of flack in its time for being basically like a ripoff of Stand By Me. There's certainly a lot of comparable things that happen in this movie to Stand By Me. Um, at that time, I mean, it, it, by today's standards, where there's very few original <laughs> movies made, this movie felt it, it felt pretty feels pretty fresh when you watch it now not like there's a a ton of coming of age movies about about four girls growing up and being best friends I could see how this could be categorized as like the female version of stand by me and it is in a lot of ways but I don't think for in a negative way I think in a really great way and I think too the time period plays a little bit better than stand by me being in 1970 what this movie does is a great job of these little individual character, the, these little individual scenes of the girls having a moment where they were like, this is the defining moment that locks them is like, you're my best friend. Like the moment that they have that they'll remember their whole lives. And it really does. I think when you're watching it, at least for me personally, gives you those moments of like a defining moment that happens to you when you're during that, the formidable years of being like 12 or 13, like, where you're starting to really understand your emotions and understand relationships with your parents and, and, you know, basically moments that like will impact you your whole life. And I, I, I think that the movie does a really great genuine way of capturing those things. Really phenomenal cast for the young characters in the movie played by Christina Ricci, Thora Birch, Gabby Hoffman from uncle buck and Ashley Aston Moore. And I think they do a great job. I think this is, Again, a movie where you don't have these, you can kind of, the the expressions that these kids do, like there is this moment of uh, exploration and like, you know, trying to understand uh, what's going on, especially during that time period, during the Vietnam War. Uh, one particular scene I wanted to note is uh, there's a special appearance by Brendan Fraser who about 1995, I mean, Brendan Fraser was super hot. I mean, he was in starring vehicles pretty much all through the early 90s and so at that point in time it was like pretty significant that he would have this like tiny little bit role but he plays a Vietnam vet who's just gotten out of the war and he's hitchhiking and he meets up with them and gives them all a cigarette and they're all sitting there smoking cigarettes which just when you're it's almost just seems kind of weird you know to see like a grown man and he's like offering cigarettes to these like 12 year old girls. It plays, I don't think that this is a a scene that that would like be in a movie now. So it plays kind of strange by today's standards, but I think it's like one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And you can kind of see that they're trying to, they're listening to him. They're trying to understand like they're, they're very inquisitive about what's going on in, in the war and like what he saw. And I think that it's, it's very interesting because you kind of, in that exact moment, you kind of see this time period where like the war and everything going on, even though they live in this very like cookie cutter existence and this like seemingly safe suburban existence at 12 years old, they're inquiring about what's going on. And like, cause they, you know, they're just seen on the news every day, people coming home that, you know, people dying in the war. And so there's, it's a little scenes like that that I think make this movie really something special. Uh, so after we get this experience, we, after we watch the, the girls go through an entire summer, we flash forward back to present day of the, 
the adults. And this time we get a little bit more understanding of where they're coming from. And, you know, and they make mention of the fact that it's been a decade since they've all been together in the movie. Again, I can see the comparisons to stand by me. Demi Moore, who's the writer of the bunch, who has gone on to become a famous author, her character in the movie, she's narrating the entire film. So it gives you that she fills in a lot of the blanks, you know, where we kind of get what she's feeling and what the people are feeling. But she, at the end of the movie, kind of makes mention that, you know, this is she feel she needed this like she being away from what they had, this bond that they had, this friendship that they had is what's like missing in her life. And I don't know, it doesn't come off cheesy. The ending of the movie comes off like pretty legitimately emotional and genuine. And I'll say that I'm not, it's kind of strange, like in my mind, I'm not a Rosie O'Donnell fan, but then we did A League of Their Own and I love her so much in that movie. And I forget that I love Rosie O'Donnell so much in Beautiful Girls and she again in this movie I think adds there's like a softer side to her you know and and she does she can play the abrasive like sort of angry smart alecky characters all day long you know it's totally ease but I think she does um this is another performance of hers that that I admire and and even though they're very short and it you know and I I think too like it's it's very tough it's like when you do the whole like they're old and talking and then you flash back to the kids and you flash back to them it's, I think that's a tough thing to pull off. I think that's really tough to do no matter what, who you are, you know, actor, director, but I think they do a decent job. I mean, it, it's a little stiff at times, but I think it, I think it works very well. Um, this is a very fun, enjoyable movie. If it's one that you haven't seen in a while, it's on Netflix currently. It's really worth visiting. It was one that got pretty badly bashed by critics when it came out and I think this, I want to say like, just from the little bit that I read of it, it seemed like it's gained like sort of a cult status among women who've like, you know, grew up and that was a movie that they, that they watched when they were a kid. So, um, now and then, uh, great cast, great ensemble cast, uh, great little slice of life tale coming of age tale. Um, and then there, then, and definitely has some moments of like, adventure there's like an adventure story that goes on where they're searching for the mystery of this kid who died a mysterious death and so that's part of their their mission their kind of what they want to accomplish that summer uh yeah one i hadn't seen since it came out and i was i was really uh i'd been this was the hard toughest one for doing a pick of the week for me so i must have watched like four different movies i was like deliberating on and then when i looked up gabby hoffman i was like oh now and then i like kind of remember that movie it was like saw it in the theater you know 25 years ago or something and uh yeah about halfway through it I was like no this is the one this is gonna be my pick of the week I thoroughly enjoyed it it had been since this movie came out on video that I that I had seen it so I was happy I got to watch it before I heard you talk about it and man yeah there's there's so many surprising moments it was like I was watching it for the first time like some things I remembered but for being I mean, I I wouldn't say it's a kid's movie, but like a, yeah. a, a teen movie. It's a mature teen mature, movie. Yeah, yeah, mature teen movie. It was surprising, and I, I loved that the, you know, the, the different avenues, the, the stories in this movie took such a, like, adult turn yeah. in, in, in so many ways. And, yeah, there were a couple surprising things that happened in it for me, and... Um, 
had everything kind of wrapped up nicely at the end. I really enjoyed watching this movie again. And I thought this movie showed a lot of restraint in during the nineties. There was like a, a gigantic batch of movies that, that took place in the seventies or like sort of depicted that time period. And given the fact that like Forrest Gump came out a year before this movie did, and was just like a huge smash success. I thought this movie showed a lot of good um, restraint and not overusing like, we're going to put a Credence Clearwater song over this whole scene or like, or, you know, showing a bunch of news footage or, you know I mean? They, I, I thought that it was like really reserved in a good way yeah. of not like overdoing it with like, You're, we're in the seventies people. This is the seventies. Like we're going to show you everything that took place. So you know that we're in the seventies. Um, I really like that about it as well. Yeah. Well, uh, so those are our picks of the week now and then from 1995. And who's Harry Crumb? Who is Harry Crumb? 1989. Who's, you're going to have to watch John Candy as a redhead in yeah. that, too. <laughs> and not only that, him doing other characters as well. Oh, we yeah. We won't get into that. Yeah. Well, let's keep on moving. Uh, <laughs> here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? Flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. It should probably come as no surprise that Billy and John Candy were friends. They're both legendary comedians, they're both total scene stealers, and they're both born out of Chicago's Second City Theater. Sure, a ton of the most well-known comedians have come out of there, but check this. Back in 1973, it was Billy who took the green, still-finding-his-footing, baby-face John Candy under his wing. And as I said before, it was at the behest and trickery of Danny Aykroyd that got the Canadian John Candy to audition for the Toronto branch of Second City. And, you know, John nailed it. He was shipped down to Chicago to get a better feel of the Chicago stage, but mainly because of the masterfully renowned grandfather of improv, Del Close, who was the director down there, wanted him to come down. John thought it was only going to be two weeks, but those two weeks ended up being a whole year. And Billy was also a fresh-faced addition to the 1973 Second City crew. Um, but he was the one that really took a shine to John. Because Billy's older brother was the first of the Murray clan to join in 1969, Billy was mostly known as Brian's little brother at Second City. But steadily, Billy was becoming his own force on stage. I'll never forget when I first went down to Chicago, how in awe I was, John said, remembering the cast he joined, including Billy, Betty Thomas, Jim Stahl, and Ann Ryerson. I remember watching them perform one night, and I thought, I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to be able to fit in. I can't do this. And then Del Close, the director, leans over to John and says, you're going to be doing this on Wednesday night. Can you even imagine the pressure Improv isn't the easiest, and as Billy has said so many times, you've got to be unafraid to die over and over again before you can create some true magic on stage. 
and that first night John was on stage, he was so nervous between sketches in the dark, he ran into someone like straight in the face. One of the other players split his lip open right before introducing a sketch on VD. I'm just going to let the comic irony of that just lay right there. Possibly to temper the nervousness or maybe just because he liked the guy, Brian's little brother, Billy, decided to show John all around Chicago and make him feel welcomed. Billy and John were starkly different fellas in those days. John was more the quiet, lovable type, while Billy was more brash, something that John wasn't really used to. Billy cussed. He was a little on the darker side and very unpredictable. John was out of his element, but excited by Billy's excitement. John said of Billy back in 1986, He's the kind of guy who called me at 4 a.m. when the Iran-Contra hostages were freed and say, Hey man, thanks for being Canadian. Candy'd be safely tucked away in his bed at that point, never thinking to disturb anyone at that kind of hour. This is my town, Billy said to John more than a few times, and it can be yours too. Billy took John to his first Cubs game, knew every single player, and gave John a breakdown of the team, even providing an insider's tour into Wrigley Field. They'd slam a few burgers at the original McDonald's or pack away some food at the first original IHOP. And then it was back to Billy guiding John around the city, even to some of the not-so-nice areas of town. John would later say Billy talked about Chicago as if it were this ancient historical city filled with breathtaking European monuments or something. Billy was trying to show John the brilliance of his new home, just the beautiful way he saw it every day as something truly magical. Back at the Second City main stage, Billy challenged the rules of improv, pushed every envelope, and it was why improv worked so well for him. John was still figuring out why he liked improv and why he was good at it. They both were still honing their skills, and they weren't perfect. Brian Doyle Murray was much more profesh than his brother, so sometimes it did get a little lonely out there for Billy and John at first, because they were both kind of green. No one, you know, wanted to do a lot of sketches with them, especially for John, because he was more on the reserve side. He still had a ways to go, said Joe Flaherty, who I've talked about before, a comedian and Second City alum. For a while there, John would disappear into a scene. If there were such a thing as being too much of a team player, John Candy, and learning to be free in those early days in Chicago, it might have been it. Before too long, John became one of the most beloved players at Second City. He was willing, happy, eager, and just genuinely sweet and warm kind of guy. Audiences loved him, and so did his fellow actors. I've tried to find a few skits of Billy and John together, but with no luck. Maybe a little bit of bad audio, but nothing fully. And there is one evidently legendarily awful skit that they did together called New Delhi. So drop me a line if anyone out there has uh, a line on that sketch. I give anything to see them do anything together or hear audio of it. But man, to see a triumphant bomb, that might even be better than seeing something that totally worked. After a short-lived year... At Second City in Chicago, John was beckoned back to his hometown in Toronto, back at the Canadian Second City, and he was totally sad to leave his new home. But out of that was born SCTV, Second City TV, basically the Canadian SNL, and history was made, friendships forever cemented via Second City Theater, whether those original players went to Toronto or New York. Billy and John would re-team in 1981 Stripes, 
um, one of my absolute favorite movies. And I'm not going to go into that right now because hopefully we'll talk about that movie at length, you know, one of these days, but I could go on and on. You got to cut these Murray moments off somewhere. So for now, just think of baby 70s versions of Billy Murray and John Candy palling around Chicago. It kind of makes me smile every time I think about it. That's awesome. It's so cute that they like formed a bond. <laughs> I, I wish that they would have gotten, you know, I, I, Candy like worked with Aykroyd so many yeah. times. It would have been awesome if, if Candy and, and Bill Murray would have gotten together and done a movie I later, wonder if, later on in their career. I wonder if it was just a timing thing or what, but I mean, I know there was that certainly that Canadian bond that, yeah. that cemented John Candy and with like, you know, Eugene Levy and, and Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray really wasn't in that, That's true, that vein, yeah, yeah. but it was, everyone was, um, you know, they, they were all involved with each other's product, like yeah. projects. They were, you know, they were both in little shop of horrors, but didn't share a scene right. together. Just yeah. everybody's involved with each other, but maybe not directly. But, uh, at least they got stripes. So. <sighs> stripes. We'll do that one eventually. Well, thank you for that Murray moments. Of course. Always a pleasure. Do we have any uh, final thoughts on Uncle Buck before we call it on this episode? I think the only thing I could really think of is that I feel like this is one of the few John Hughes movies where the music is like less contemporary for the time. You know, he does a lot more of what John Candy would listen to, character would listen to, not so much of... Uh, you know, his other movies have a lot more, I think, uh, like a new wave vibe. And there certainly is like a little bit of that, but the music is more, less contemporary than other Hughes movies that came out at the time. I think the only thing that stands out song-wise in this is the fact that it's like Tone Loke's beginning beat. (laughs) Um, But uh, other than that, yeah, it wasn't the, the typical... John Hughes, like, you know, make or break of a yeah. career of a we, British you know, band. Very known as a music guy. So mm-hmm. it was um, kind of surprising looking at it now, like the music selection of this. But it works, though. I, th- yeah. I mean, I think music plays a big part in the character of Buck. And, uh, yeah, it, it definitely does. I'm, I'm kind of cracking up because the opening shot of, of Uncle Buck, there's kind of like this very, like, heartwarming kind of like empathetic you know tune like score oh that, yeah that starts the piano yeah and it's really kind of like you know it kind of grips your heart a little bit and then you kind of just like burst that bubble for me when you were like did you actually listen to the whole song yeah it was like youtubing <laughs> songs from uncle buck and that's it's like a six six <laughs> minute and 50 second like ballady type song if but you don't want that they, song they ruined. cut off the vocals yeah they John Hughes knew yeah. to cut off those. It almost vocals. sounds like it's it was scored for the movie, but yeah, it was just like the first like forty five seconds of the song, then then goes into like some pretty uh pretty cheesy stuff, <laughs> vocal stuff. But yeah, um, John Hughes knew what he was doing with yeah. music. I think he heard you know he heard that section. He's like, "This is how we open." Um, we need mm. this. We're opening, but we're cutting off right as soon as the vocals start. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks so much for checking out our episode on John Candy and Uncle Buck. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, this movie, again, is so much fun to me. It's just uh, a movie that makes me feel good, and it's one that I continue to revisit year after year uh, when I know I need a, a pick-me-up. And a movie that's just filled with endless quotes. 
I mean, I, I, I don't know how many we've said during yeah, during off, this off podcast the mic and, and off the mic. I think one of my I don't know how many quotes I texted you this week. <laughs> you have, you have. I think one of my one of my favorites from Buck when Tia's really giving him a hard time and doesn't want to go bowling is when he's like, "How would you like to spend the next several nights wondering if your crazy out of work bum uncle is going to shave your head while you're sleeping?" They do the I'll see you in the car. Music. <laughs> There's just so many things about this movie. Um, endless. Whether it's from Uncle Buck, whether it's from Tia or the kids, like John Hughes knows how to write dialogue or yeah. knew how to write dialogue. We hope you've enjoyed our talk on Uncle Buck. Yes. Um, what do we have coming up next episode? I think... Um, Oh my goodness. I know. We're doing one that you are super stoked about and I That's right. I couldn't be more excited to do we're this. We're doing one. Walter Hill's The Warriors. Get ready, y'all. And I'm excited because this is to talk this is going to be my opportunity to just sort of go on this Walter Hill early career marathon. This like some sometimes we do these episodes and it gives like gives me a reason to do something like that mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm certainly going to take advantage of that I'm, I'm going to dig in and do like the first five movies that Walter Hill did and like it's going to be week. like 90% you and like 2% no. me no I'm just joking I'm joking Ugh. I'm excited I'm really I've, I've excited to about do the it Warriors too. for a while and uh, yeah um, I'm excited to this is going to be the theatrical cut of the Warriors yes not the director's cut though I'm I'm going to watch the director's cut just so we can talk a little bit about that, but we'll get into that. There's all yeah, kinds that's of stuff we're going to get. That's yeah. all next episode. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for listening. Um, you can catch us on social media and Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Don't Push Pause Podcast. Uh, if you want to check out uh, any of our back episodes, uh, we have an archive on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. If you listen to us on iTunes, uh, if you're an Apple user, uh, it always helps if you think that we're worthy enough. Please give us a good rating. Leave us a review. It really uh, does help us, guys. And it does let us lets us know that people are out there listening. Always feel free to contact us anytime you want. We love hearing from people. Don't push pause podcast at gmail.com. And Justin, I was wondering if this hat I'm wearing, if it angers you. It, it, it angers a lot of people. I'm just uh, <laughs> just wondering, like the sight of it is just upsetting. Anyway, I'll tell you a story about that later. All right, we'll do it off the mic. Off the mic. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.